Want to meet your friends from As the World Turns? Like Penny and Bob? Lisa and Chris? Grandpa and Tom? Then enter the Ivory Snow Sweepstakes. Win an expense-free trip for two to New York. Visit As the World Turns. Have dinner? An evening of entertainment? Stay overnight at the Waldorf Astoria? And next day receive $100 spending money. The term brand entertainment has had its moments, right? And it's come and it's gone. And it's been around for such a long time. The idea of returning back to the, you know, 40s and 50s where brands really were underwriting content. Coca-Cola gives you that refreshing new feeling. Enjoy ice cold Coke right now. Get zing, what a feeling with ice cold Coke right now. Brands really could um, have a much bigger role in not just renting um, on television, but but very much you know owning. Can a human being run a marathon in under two hours? That's the barrier that's in front of us. But it started a different way of thinking. This isn't a movie. No. It's a tourism ad for Australia. Yes. But listen, you're the best Crocodile Dundee since Crocodile Dundee. Really? Yes. Really. And it started getting my brain wrapped around what entertainment marketing, sports marketing really could be for brands. Um, and that became a big just passion for me. Welcome to Great Minds. I'm Matt Schechner, and our guest is David Freeman, co-head of digital media at CAA. David's journey to California years ago was born out of a long desire to head west and a sense of opportunity. When things weren't moving fast enough in the entertainment and advertising space, David took destiny into his own hands, launching a shop of his own. And I just had a little bit too much frustration of wanting to have more flexibility and had a vision of what I thought brands and digital media companies could become. And so broke out on my own, um, partnered up with, with Andy Marks, who I think you know well. And um, we started a consultancy, you know, and that consultancy, when you're starting a company, um, you know, we were kind of open to a lot of different conversations um, whether that was working directly with brands or whether that was working with rights holders. Um, and we had a lot of different inroads to a lot of different, you know, businesses. Um, started to, you know, hire folks and like a lot of young agencies started to have an overhead. Um, and we were growing, um, but really believed that in order to scale our business, we needed a bigger pipeline and better access for what our value proposition was, which is all centered around content and how brands could get into content and really be the creators of content and not just like I said earlier, renters around glorified in, you know, big media buys where it was just all about, um, you know, integrations that producers never liked that networks would give to try to get, you know, year over year media increases of 10 or, or 15%. And so, um, we were starting to have some, you know, strategic conversations with various agencies and it was PR agencies, ad agencies, media agencies, all of who believed that they really needed now profound thinking in entertainment and sports. 
Um, and we were lucky enough to um, find the right folks inside of Edelman. Um, and Richard Edelman and Gail Becker um, were the two executives who kind of approached us. We kind of gave them a philosophy of what we believed in. They had an entertainment practice, but it was very much more geared around classic PR than it was about content um, and building really exciting entertainment and sports marketing properties from the ground up. And so Andy and I, you know, um, went in-house at Edelman and um, there was a team in there that we acquired and combined that with, with our team. Um, and there we were, you know, uh, our, we, we kind of sold the agency um, and we, that was my ticket I had done about 13 years in New York and was always excited about getting to the West Coast, right? And if you're a guy who dreams of entertainment and, and media and Hollywood, doing it out of New York is, is possible, but it's not the same. And so part of the move was Andy Wood, Woodhouse. There was a team um, of folks that we were going to keep in New York, and then I was I packed my bags and with my wife and moved to L.A., and that was my ticket out to L.A., and... Um, started at Edelman in, I think it was July of 2006. Um, and that started the, uh, the new adventure in uh, California. Yeah. I think Richard's a real entrepreneur. I have, I hold him in really high regard. Oh yeah. He's a big thinker, innovative, you know, Richard, you could say a lot of different things about Richard, but the best thing about Richard is he hires an amazing team. Um, and from the minute we got in there, it was just a, an impressive group of, of thinkers. And Richard's also done a fantastic job of diversifying his offering and being one step ahead of marketplace. And um, he's still, I believe, the biggest marketing communications independent firm out there that's never sold. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I left there in 2010, but I would have figured by now it would have been sold. And I believe to this day, it's still completely, you know, independent. Yeah, no. I've actually talked to him about that a bunch, uh, and um, he's got the best answer uh, to that question. He said, listen, my dad built this business and gave it to me, and now I've continued to build it, and he wants it to go to his children. Yeah, I get that. And uh, and I, I have enormous respect for, for him and for that answer. So you uh, packed up your bags, you moved to uh, uh, LA. Um, was that... No trepidation. That was always sort of fulfillment of a dream. It sounds no, like. because you know, again, you know, um, it was. You know, I, I wanted to go um, to UCLA. My parents said no, um, and I said, "Well, how far?" And they kind of pointed. They drew a line at Chicago, and they drew a line down to South. And I got relisted at Northwestern. I get into Emory, but I always had this fascination with going to the West Coast. And in those uh, those few years of building Matter, we were on the West Coast all the time, you know, and the amount of business um, in L.A. for what we were doing and the connectivity and the relationships that we needed to build. And then I met my wife, who was a West Coaster and was looking to get back to L.A., and it all just kind of lined up. So there was no trepidation whatsoever. I don't think when I left New York in 2006 that I thought I would end up potentially, and it could very well happen, living in LA for the rest of my life. Um, and so here I am, you know, living on the west side of LA with, with two kids and a wife, you know, and, and, it's, and I, I'm grateful, but I don't think I knew at the time that making that move would have been as, um, as big. Um, but I don't, uh, for a second, you know, look back at all. So how did we go from uh, GM West Coast running matter to CAA? 
Yeah, you know, I was I, when I got to L.A., our business took off at Edelman. It was exactly what we thought it would be. It was unbelievable access to Fortune 100 companies. Um, you know, just the business with the existing client base, it, it just took off. You know, I think when when we started there, there were like maybe 15 of us. And I feel like by the time I left four or five years later, it was across four different offices. It was Chicago, it was New York, it was LA, it was London, and maybe we're up to 100 employees. So business was great. You know, there was such a um, excitement around what we were doing and everybody wanted to hear about um, the strategic thinking we had around talent partnerships and um, the strategic thinking we had around what part of parts of pop culture and entertainment, whether that was the Grammys or whether that was the Oscars or whether it was Super Bowl and how we could build these activation plans. Um, you know, and then we also went out and brought our own new business in. We signed, a, we signed Clorox was a, a, a really big client of ours and Amtrak was a client of ours. And so it was this, it was going great. You know, I, I wasn't looking for a job. Like we were, we were doing great. And, um, Richard and, and Gail Becker were fully supportive and we were hiring and we were healthy and we were growing. Um, and I had really established a lot of the relationships that I was looking for in Los Angeles, still kind of one step removed because doing entertainment marketing is different than being right in the belly of the beast in Hollywood. And, um, it was, I, you know, I, I'd known a few people over at CAA. Um, I had known Brian Weinstein. I had known Tara Hanks and a few other folks. And we were doing business with them, you know, in no different than any other person that wanted to access talent or production services. Um, and, uh, you know, purely um, from the standpoint of representing our brands. And I, I remember some early projects we did with Tom Hanks called uh, Electric City, and we brought down Starbucks and Microsoft and others to sit with Tom, and I got to know Richard a little bit. Paradise has many names. Eden. Utopia. The place of security. The illusion of freedom. Humankind gets in the way of perfection. Ghosts in the machinery of civilization. It's best to ask no questions and be told no lies. Here in the Electric City. They had asked me to come over, talk to them a little bit about what I saw coming. Now, you're talking about 2009, right around the time that a lot of advertisers and brands were starting to invest in digital. And I had just, those last two years that matter, I was obsessed with it. I was obsessed with what I was seeing um, in digital and the opportunity for this democratization of distribution to me was groundbreaking. I just couldn't even wrap my, my mind around it that we could target and the data that we could get and the distribution plans that we could build because it was always so difficult dealing with brands and the existing TV network business and the existing film business. There was less freedom and we were always at the mercy um, of those long-standing businesses and business models. And digital just provided this um, really unique path um, on both sides for the brands to reach new audiences and for the digital platforms to provide a value proposition to brands that I believed 
at, at some point in the near future was going to outweigh um, what the television business was going to provide. I didn't know when it was going to happen. That started, that started a discussion with CAA that I did not think even at the time was going to lead to a job, but I started to really understand what CAA was, which was very different than what we all think it is, you know, looking on the outside and trying to, and trying to look in. You know, it's been a little over 10 years. How much of what you thought was going to happen did happen? What was your biggest surprise? And was there anything that you thought for sure is going to hit that just tanked? Yeah, you know, anyone who sits back and says that in 2009, they knew what was going to happen. I mean, come on, in 2009, 2010, you know, barely anybody knew about YouTube. Instagram didn't exist. Snapchat didn't exist. TikTok wasn't even on the radar. Um, Facebook was a, a little blip. You know, nobody was spending their time on the phones the way that they were. It was really just mostly for some light texting and, 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 and phone calls. But um, I had this feeling in my gut. I, I had this feeling, again, I go back to that de- the democratization of distribution, that, that nothing could stop that train. And, and the technology, um, you know, we, you, you had said earlier that intersection between Hollywood and, and Madison Avenue and that love affair but then there was this third wheel, right? It was Silicon Valley and this technology thing. And as we, you know, we, Edelman had had a, a really big, strong San Francisco um, office and a good foothold inside of, um, of the Valley. And so I got exposed to a lot of those things. And so to sit here and say that I knew what exactly how it was going to be and how, uh, you know, with the opportunity that, that I got to create the, the digital business at CAA and, you know, I should qualify that a little bit further into this conversation, but there wasn't a digital department, right? And so that's what I had kind of spoken to the heads of the of CA about was, you know, this this tidal wave's coming and it's early, but you know, all the agencies are going to be drastically, you know, affected by it, and that doesn't necessarily mean a negative thing because you know, and a lot of disruption can 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 be opportunity. Um, but to sit here and say that I knew how it was going to roll out and that I knew these uh, five big, you know, technology companies, right? Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, were going to, to a certain degree, I don't want to say take over Hollywood, but if you think about it now, you know, one could, could, could say that. And it, it, it there's certainly be a lot of people who would, who would agree. Um, but it was, it was amazing. And it, and, and it was, you know, being inside of CAA and all of the resources that they had and understanding how that amazing company thought and moved and uh, the access they had and the, and, and, and it really was the storytellers that they represented that was so exciting about me being over there at a time where all these new technologies and all these ways of reaching audiences was exploding and every single turn, every single twist, every single turn, we were there to make a play for it. Um, it was just, it was amazing. And, and it still continues to be that. I, I, I'll be honest, I didn't think I'd be there for 10 years. But, you know, again, representing the, the people that we do and the breadth of having our hands and feet in all aspects of not just pop culture, but culture combined with, you know, the technology that continues 
to come out and change year after year after year has sustained uh, a curiosity and, a, and, and an excitement that I, I didn't find in my career. And it sounds like right from the beginning, the powers that be on uh, your you know office on Avenue of the Stars, that they got it and they gave you a pretty clean piece of paper and said, go get them. They did. And, it, and, it, and, and that was amazing, you know, and, and for a while we were this little group of bandits who, you know, kind of had our own little world, you know, and it, and it, it wasn't necessary. And, and so it was more in the beginning, something that they needed, they, they knew we needed to be in, but it still, it didn't at that time um, have a ridiculous amount of revenue the way the legacy businesses um, did. Right. And so, there was a lot of education. There was a lot that we had to do internally. Um, but slowly but surely, these different moments from 2010 and those first few years, and you remember kind of some of the bigger moments, right? YouTube came out with their big funding of new channels. And that was a big moment for us. Kev Jungma here to announce the launch of the new YouTube network, Yam Yam Meth. Yam Yam Meth consists of Fast Five director Justin Lin, Brian Higa, Chester C, and me, the famous one. Let's go take a look. Hey, Masi. Hey, Kevin. At Young Young Meth, everybody pitches in. No job is too big or too small. Oh, sorry. You know protocol. This is where the magic is made and all of Google's money is spent. On cool stuff like Jesse Alba washing the car with his sexy friends. Hey, Kevin. Looking good, Parvish. Thanks, Kevin. YouTube really was investing some real money and letting people own. When, when did you hear about a model in Hollywood where, where you were going to get a 3 to $8 million check to start your own channel that you were going to own all of the content for um, and that you could decide how to allocate that money? I mean, it was, it was a, it would, that was a wild moment. Um, and that started you know, a number of different opportunities for us because at the time, what we were mostly doing in digital was really talking to um, brands about how they could partner with talent across digital around branded content. But when the YouTube thing kind of took off, we now were getting into a business that CAA had always been in, which was creating content with just production companies and talent because we had the funding and we didn't necessarily have to rely on the brands as the sole means to, to do projects that might not have fit squarely into the traditional businesses of 22 minute shows and 44 minute shows. Um, so that was a really big moment um, that I think changed a lot um, for the digital landscape, you know, and then you had other moments of Xbox taking a run and Yahoo taking a run and AOL taking a run and a number of other things over the next few years that just kind of, you know, exploded um, that we were in the middle of and trying to, in those first few years, to be totally honest with you, Matt, we didn't exactly know wh how it was twisting, how it was turning. And we still didn't have distinct yet, um, verticals and revenue streams the way we do now in our department. Um, but it was, uh, it sure was a lot of, uh, excitement and a lot of fun and a, and a lot of learnings for the whole agency. You know, you, you talked about the uh, consolidation of power amongst the, you know, the Amazons and Apple and Netflix, certainly Google, Facebook. Um, are they the equivalent today of what the studios were in the halcyon days of Hollywood? I think they are. 
I think they are with a, with a whole set of different tools and resources and understanding of who their audiences are. Right. I mean, you didn't hear the word data when I started in 2010. You didn't, uh, didn't exist. Um, we got a whole data and intelligence department. We've built our own proprietary data system around our clients and it's only getting stronger and, and, and bigger. And so I do think these companies, as you start to think about, you know, in increments of two years, five years from now, um, are just going to get bigger, stronger, better. I think you're going to see some of the smaller players potentially fall off, but I don't see a world where uh, those companies that I mentioned earlier um, are not going to continue to grow their, their, their footholds. I think it's only going to get stronger. And I think, you know, TV is still, uh, meaning traditional cable and broadcast is still alive and still healthy. And you see brands that are still investing there. Um, but, it's struggling. It's struggling. And that's, that's not a big surprise. That's not a big statement. I just think that the speed to which that business will continue to suffer and the rise of streaming, we're at the peak of that, right? And it's been slow drip, I think, over the last 10 years. And now with the onset of HBO Max and Peacock and Quibi, which launches, you know, this week, next week, um, you know, it's, uh, and, and Disney plus, I mean, you know, th- that in and of itself is just an unbelievable, powerful, um, vehicle for arguably the biggest IP holder in, you know, in the world. Um, and, and there's still a lot of other plays we made. I still think Apple has a lot of moves to make and they still haven't necessarily, um, figured it all out. I think, you know, we've seen runs by Facebook and YouTube, um, as they got into originals and they're kind of cycling back and figuring it, figuring out what's their bread and butter and what works and, and what doesn't work. And, you know, then you think about Instagram, um, you know, every single one of my talent is on Instagram and you think about Instagram TV, we're, we're bullish about that too. So I, 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 I I'm super excited about, you know, the next 24 months, to be honest. I always wonder when Netflix and you'll remember when it was a DVD mailing business. Of course. Do you think Reed Hastings and the powers that be knew then what was going to happen? Or do you think they were as surprised as anybody? I love that question because I talk about this all the time. And listen, I love, I love my friends at Netflix. What Reed, Reed and Ted have built is unbelievable. But the answer is no. The answer is no. That doesn't mean that they weren't so smart to pivot and make some moves, but do I believe there was some luck? And look, luck factors into business. You know that. I know that. But there were some moments, as you look back on that trajectory, that it could have turned easily into a blockbuster mistake, you know. Um, And so, you know, those guys were at the right place at the right time, right moment, you know, and um, it was fun because early days I was – uh, to some degree involved in some of that early Netflix buying. Cause I think the first 10 shows on Netflix were, uh, were out of CAA, but uh, you know, there, you know, it's funny cause you, you Ted, Ted will say, we'll, we'll, we'll give that story. Reed will give that story. Um, and, and, and I credit those guys, everything, but I, but I do think there was some marketplace things that happened that allowed them to rise to where they have. But again, those guys are unbelievable and what they're building, what they continue to build and how they just keep their vision straightforward with all the new players on the, on the block is just unbelievable. 
Okay, so let's talk about what you're doing now. Yeah, so the department is called Digital Media, um, and there's basically four verticals um, with different teams um, on each vertical. First is a, you know, a, a legacy skill set that we've had for a long time. We sell a tremendous amount of content to every streaming and OTT platform out there, right? Our, our department is technically under the television group, and we sit side by side with our TV colleagues, and we're all aimed at um, you know, selling as much content for our clients, right? And that's clients in all shapes and sizes, right? That's, that's scripted, that's non-scripted, and that's interactive, um, usually our group handles a lot more of the emerging platforms, right? So when Jeffrey Katzenberg um, comes rolling into town, you know, we're usually first to be there and understand what he's looking for, deal structure, how he's looking to do business, and we bring that information back and we open the floodgates up for the rest of the agency, which has been the same case as YouTube got into things, as, as Facebook got into things, and as Instagram's got to get into things. and other interactive platforms um, like Echo and, and, and Snapchat. Um, and so, you know, what's interesting about what's happened is you've got a lot of folks um, who are selling across the entire space, right? And if you walked in my television department today, you'd see film in there and you'd see sports in there and music in there, right? Because there's so much happening across all the streaming platforms. So very healthy business will continue to always be, you know, a staple Second area is is brands and the brand partnership team. Two sides of that business. Um, one is sitting down with brands and helping them to build content solutions. Uh, those can be weighed toward very campaign-driven branded entertainment, uh, which might be tied to a current ad campaign, which doesn't have a whole heck of a lot of shelf life. Or what we're, much, what we're much more excited about is, is really getting brands to invest in real IP and partner with the same creators who are creating the best TV and film shows across the industries because our clients want those opportunities now. As much as, you know, there are, it's great to be a seller these days, it's so hard to get anything on television or, or streamers. And once you do, you've got a network um, telling you exactly what you got to do. And so the freedom that a lot of our producers, production companies, and, and talent feel in partnering with brands on their passion projects is a really exciting um, opportunity that we are, are, are playing a lot in. And I also touched upon the work we're doing to try to help brands think through solutions around you know, subscriptions. So that branded content is a big part of our brand partnership team. And then we're also doing a lot of the paid-to-post influencer deals for digital endemic talent and also for our traditional clients. So that's kind of our brand lane. We have an advisory practice that we opened about two years ago. Um, and, you know, and in short, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but the amount of information Intel access we have between Madison Avenue, Hollywood and Silicon Valley, we realized there was a lot of, a lot of companies out there who would often come to us about being represented but that we wouldn't necessarily sign right away because they, they weren't necessarily ready for that traditional representation. Um, I'm talking about digital media companies, digital publishers, Silicon Valley um, companies who needed another level of service. And so um, that is a retainer-based model um, that we're helping those companies build. We're helping them think about how to play in the premium content space. We're helping them to supercharge their branded content efforts and helping them get access to our talent to do unique partnerships with. 
And the last area is talent. We got into the influencer space, I don't know, five, six years ago, represent um, at any given time, 80 to 100 different digital endemic talent. We love that business because if you really break that business down, it's a direct-to-consumer business. Um, And the interesting part about that business is when we got into it, I remember a lot of our movie star clients and music talent and sports talent really separated themselves from that crop of talent, right? Because those young kids created their own worlds and created their own personalities and created their own platforms out of their living rooms, right? And they were real creators. The irony of it is um, while we service those clients 360 across everything that they do, our big movie star talent and music talent now are becoming creators, right? And they finally have embraced the fact, look at what Will Smith has done over the last 18 months, um, have embraced what it means to be a creator and not just look at your social as a place to market and promote your upcoming um, TV and film, but as a place to have a direct relationship with your audiences where you can build businesses, sell products, um, and, 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 and look at that data and, and, and move your businesses and adjust your business to think like an entrepreneur, not just, you know, actors or storytellers. So those are the kind of the four verticals. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of activity that we cover, a lot of ground that we cover. So of the brands that you're working with, and that's, I know it's a pretty big, heavy list, who comes to mind? You say they really get it. They understand the world as it is today and as it's going to be to the degree that we know what it's going to look like tomorrow. Who's really getting it right? Um, and is there a particular brand or product category, if you will, if you don't want to name a brand, I don't want to put you on the spot, that you say, boy, they just have been missing the boat and no wonder they're not doing very well? Yeah, you know, I think... I think the it's amazing to me, like I said earlier, the conversations that we're having today at a high level with CMOs. And, um, you know, the brands that I think that are getting it, um, Unilever, Marriott, Pepsi, Nike, P&G, um, Miller, um, you know, and that, and that list continues. There's also this crop of brands, as you know, all these challenger brands um, who are being born from e-commerce and from a social, you know, beginning who also can't compete with a lot of the companies that I just named as it relates to their, um, their media and their marketing budgets, uh, budgets, and they use content as a vehicle, you know, to, to, to talk to um, their consumers, Columbia, Bombas Socks, um, and, 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 and a slew of others, a slew of beauty brands as well. Um, all of those brands that I mentioned are some I put in the category of know they need to be there, but haven't figured out how others, you know, the more sophisticated players, um, Unilever has Unilever studios and Pepsi has the creators league. Um, you know, and, and, and a, a number of the other brands have those chief content officers and are exploring lo- uh, lots of different models. Um, I wish we were further along. We talked about that earlier in the conversation. Um, you know, cause all of these brands, it's, it's, it's just still mind boggling, mind boggling to me, the amount of money they spend, um, on just media. You're talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and them pulling aside, you know, a 10th of that budget to put into 
premium content and start to be seen as a producer and start to be seen as a um, entertainment enabler um, still isn't it from a guy who, who, who sees it from a different angle. Still not where we want it to be, but the, you know, the conversations are, are certainly um, the most exciting that, that they've ever been in, in my career. You and I share uh, something common that we that we both had the same email address for a pretty long time. You know, we know a lot of people that move around. I'm I'm you know slightly longer than you. I've had the same email address for about 15, 16 years. You've had it for about eleven years. But we'll Correct. call that we'll call that roughly the same. So you've seen a lot of change uh, in clients. Yep. The average tenure of the average CMO somewhere is around two years. Um, yep. And is it odd to you that in some ways CAA has almost evolved as an institutional memory for a lot of these companies? Yeah, and, and that's part of the problem, you know, meaning <laughs> you, it, it, in the branded content world or the stuff that you and I are talking about right now, maybe three quarters of the battle is finding the right person at that company who believes in it, right? Um, you got to have that person who's trying to think. And, and we all know Mark Pritchard is one of those guys. He thinks differently. He believes in this stuff. And he's been there. I don't, he could be the longest tenure of, of any CMO uh, in terms of. Yeah, I think in my, in, my, in my tenure, it's been Jim Stengel and Mark Pritchard. That's it. That's right. Right. And so that's and when you have someone like that who believes in a particular initiative or direction that you have to move a big organization toward, then you can get a lot done. And it, it has been challenging, right? And there's been a lot of brands that you get down the road with and you, you, you're trying to show them a three to five year plan, not just a, a one and done plan, right? Because if you're going to play in Hollywood, you, you, you can't, you, you got to put that time in and you got to understand the chess pieces and it takes some time to, you know, to do that. And as all these brands have come to us, cause a lot of them do, we try to get them to understand that depending on what their goals and objectives are. It doesn't mean that we're not open for business for someone that wants to create a eight episode short form series that tags and ties very nicely to a 30 second spot that's coming out around the Super Bowl or coming out around any other big moment in pop culture. We absolutely do. And we're, and we're, and, and we do a lot of that, right. But the brands who really want to build a sustainable practice um, and start to have a seat at the table for the long term, um, those are the ones that we're excited about. But to your point, it's sometimes tricky because those CMOs, I would say 24 months is a, is a good run, right? And then you get somebody else in and people still, it's all about, you know, and the problem with branded content, let's be honest, is the, uh, the ROI and the data back and the reporting and how do you tie that to product sales? And that's been its, its Achilles heels for years. I'd love to know either looking back early in your career or up to the present day, who are some of the great minds that you look to when you need a little inspiration or folks, when they speak, you listen a little extra hard. Does anybody, any, anyone in particular come to mind? Um, I already told you Mark Pritchard from a marketing perspective. 
I love listening to Gary Vaynerchuk as he thinks through entrepreneurial entrepreneurialism and 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 social. Um, I'm trying to gear it toward toward entertainment. I I, I certainly always listen to, and this is going to sound like like an an easy thing to plug, but you know um, the amazing Richard Lover who runs our company and and the way he thinks through. Um, you know, strategies and the way he motivates us inside of our company, uh, you know, along with Brian and, 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 and Kevin. So, so there's the, uh, easy plug, you know, for, you know, for those guys. Um, yeah, those are the ones that, you know, that, that come to mind. I mean, certainly, you know, uh, you know, the Barry Dillers and the Bob Igers, I, I do a lot of their, I, I read all their stuff. Um, you know, whether those are books or whether those are the podcasts or, or wherever they're traveling to, um, you know, those guys are, are icons. Those guys are legends um, and continue to kind of build empires. So fabulous. All right, David, listen, you stay safe and we'll stay in touch. And thank you for joining us. Loved having Matt, you. Matt, can't thank you enough. Really, really appreciate it. And same to you and yours. All right, my friend. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit AdvertisingWeek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.